My name is Jones. I'm an alcoholic. I'm a member of Alcoholic Anonymous and in good standing. My sobriety birthday is July the 31st, 1978. My home group is the Principals Group of Raleigh, North Carolina. We one group that meet twice a week. We meet on Tuesdays and Thursdays. And on Tuesday night is our closed discussion meeting. On the first Tuesday of the month, we take a topic from the Big Book of Alcoholic Anonymous and read and discuss it and share our experience. On the second and third Tuesday of the month, we pick topics from uh, AA literature that are conference approved, that are common to all alcoholics in their quest for sobriety. On the fourth Tuesday of the month, we study a tradition in conjunction with whatever month that is. This month was the fourth month and Tuesday we discovered, shared our, our fourth tradition. If there is a fifth Tuesday of the month, we discover, we share and discuss AA history. And on Thursday night with our open speaker meeting, we're on 4100 Buffalo Road in Raleigh, North Carolina. If you're ever in the area, look us up. We'd be glad to have you. I would like to, to uh, think that we could make you as welcome in North Carolina as you have made me here in Detroit. You've been great. This has been a great conference. You had a great selection of speakers that went on before me, and you have managed to pull this off with first class. Yeah. The only way this thing gets screwed up now, I do it. <laughs> but with your help, we will continue to do that. I would like to thank the committee for inviting me out here. I'd like to thank the people for picking me up at the airport. I'd like to thank uh, members for showing me around uh, the fair city of Detroit. Uh, I would like to thank J.C. for being here. I met him at the airport. Uh, gave a great talk to keep this thing off, and I've reaped more benefits from his talk than he did, because I've been following him around all weekend, and, you know, people have been shaking my hand just because I'm with him. <laughs> this ain't the first time I've followed people around like J.C. I used to follow them around in handcuffs. <laughs> Man, if this program can make a joke like me friend with a policeman, I should stick around. <laughs> this is a really a powerful deal, you know. I am really, really grateful to be here. Uh, I hope I can get settled down here just for a minute and, and get off into what my big book tells me to do is you know, in chapter 5, we're reading our old meeting, says that our story disclosed in a general way of what it used to be like, what happened, and what it's like now. And uh, that's exactly what I'm going to attempt to do. I've already been given instruction. He didn't know me long, but he, he was know me long enough to tell me what to do. <laughs> he told me to quit by quarter to 12, but we were out of here. He don't know that I ain't that all that time conscious. I don't fit in with time all that well. <laughs> it take me an hour and a half to watch 60 minutes. <laughs> so you can imagine how this thing goes. 
He did know enough about me to tell you where I was from. He said that I was from Raleigh, North Carolina. And that's what your program says, that I, uh, I'm from uh, Raleigh, North Carolina. Uh, uh, the program has taught me to be honest. Raleigh, North Carolina is a good city. The state of North Carolina is a good city. Uh, state, and I'm glad to live in uh, North Carolina. But I've always been a little ashamed and apprehensive of who I was and where I was from. And, you know, because I felt less than other people, but the program have taught me to be honest. The truth of the matter is, I'm from Mississippi. <laughs> <laughs> he gave me a great opportunity not to tell the truth about that, but, uh, you know, today I, I no longer feel embarrassed about where I'm from or who I am. You know, that's what the program has done for me. It gave me a real identity and I don't have to walk around and and pretend to be something that I'm not or pretend to be from some place that I'm not. Uh, you know you hear all those little despairing remarks about Mississippi. If you're from Mississippi you you dumb, you backwards and people don't know how to treat you and you can't read and write and you know, you still hear all those despairing remarks about Mississippi. You know, and I, I always thought that people were laughing at me because I was from Mississippi, and I felt a little less than. You know, and people who always would leave Mississippi, everybody left Mississippi. Some of them, some of them left Mississippi and come to Detroit. <laughs> come up here to Detroit and stay a while and they'd come back to Mississippi and share all those big ideas about the land of opportunity and how things was up north and how nice things was up north and how well they was being treated and they was living next door to the folks and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> rough thing was in Mississippi and how glad they was to get out of there. Man, and they'd come up here and y'all would clean them up too. <laughs> and they would get back down there and they would look like they was better than me. <laughs> you know? Could you imagine me thinking somebody from Detroit, Michigan was better than me? <laughs> Man, how backwards could I have been? <laughs> The program has brought me up. <laughs> you know, I'm eyeball eyeball with any man or woman, as long as I don't put alcohol in my system. The minute I put alcohol in my system, I automatically become less than you, because I have over 26 years of practical experience to prove that I can't function under the influence of alcohol. You know, I tried. I've never worked as hard as anything as I worked at becoming an alcoholic. I was determined to be an alcoholic. All somebody else talked about was probably J.C. All of the signs against me ever taking a drink was that. I grew up in Mississippi in a dry county. Alcohol was not allowed in that county. Bootlegger was looked up on by like dope dealers is today. Nobody wanted them around. But those were the people that I was attracted to, I gravitated towards those people. Another thing about my drinking, my drinking have never been accepted by anybody. 
people that sold booze didn't accept my drinking. <laughs> my drinking was a problem from the very start. <laughs> Initially, it wasn't no big problem. They were just little old bitty problems. You know, every time I got drunk, somebody would say something about it. I'd get drunk and go places I shouldn't have go. I'd spend money that I didn't have. I would say things to people that I shouldn't have said. And people were always giving me that feedback out. You know, man, you know what you said to J.C.'s wife last night? Somebody's going to hurt you if you don't stop all that stuff. You know, it was a problem from the very start. Alcohol have always made me sick. Alcohol made me sick the first time I ever drank any alcohol, and alcohol made me sick the last time I ever drank any alcohol. That marijuana just made me paranoid. <laughs> I stop a half a block from the red light, scared I'm going to run it. <laughs> Basically, what you're looking at, I'm a weekend drunk. But I get drunk anytime. But weekend is just the time that I like to get drunk. You know, there's something about that Friday night that that adrenaline just get the flowing. You know, if I'd been drinking all week, I'd rest up Friday night so I could get right out in there with that adrenaline and flowing, and uh, I'd just be out of control. You know, I woke up on Monday morning and give away booze, swearing off to quit forever. And I was just as serious about not drinking then as I am right now. But the difference between then and now is you. You're the difference. I know now that I can't stay sober all by myself. I didn't know that then. That's the first step of Alcoholic Anonymous. We admitted we were powerless over alcohol that our lives had become unmanageable. First time I ever heard another human being recite that, I taped it. You know, is that what my problem is? Powerless over alcohol. My life's unmanageable. You know, that's just something just... I couldn't see myself accepting that. I grew up in Mississippi. I'm one of 12 kids. My mother and father was married over 67 years. There have always been two parents in my house. My father was a farmer. He's a hard-working farmer. Believed in disciplinary. He scratched the good living out of that farm. My mama's a good woman. I mean, I can't see how in the world she could have mothered me, the kind of woman that she was. She'd be right at that church on Sunday morning on her knees and praying for her kids. And I turn out totally uh, uh, different from all of that. I've always wanted to be a man. I never wanted to be a boy. I always wanted to be something that I was. So for 24 years and got invited to the men's conference, I guess I finally made it a man. <laughs> I guess I've been upset. All of the men in my family drank the alcohol. All of the women in my family ever brought one in, brought one in that drank the alcohol. I thought drinking alcohol was just a part of growing up. If you're going to be a man, you're going to have to drink. And I love that change that I saw come over people when they got drunk. If I'd have had anything to do with it, I'd have killed my father with alcohol. Because when he got drunk, he'd become a different person. You know, he just become more fun-loving them. All that cotton in the field, let it go. <laughs> we'll get it later. 
You know, I saw him as a better person when he drank, you know. And I liked that excitement that I saw come over him and other people when they drank. And I got older brothers, you know, uh, uh, and any time that they talked about having any fun or anything, it centered around alcohol. You know, and I love that little fun that I saw come over them when they got drunk. If you was born in Mississippi, it's kind of like born in a vacuum cleaner or something. You know, man, when those guys get drunk, they would become bad, you know. I tell you, and I, I really liked it that, and I gravitated towards people that, uh, that drank alcohol. Now, I've always heard people say when they get up here at this podium that they always known that they was an alcoholic. I didn't always know that I was an alcoholic. I was sober for a year and didn't believe that I was an alcoholic. I didn't have any idea that I was an alcoholic. But I always had that obsession and that preoccupation about alcohol. You know, and I saw alcohol as something good. I've heard people say that they first drank was like magic. You know, they, they thought that they was Fred Astaire, John Wayne, just all kinds of old nice things on their first drink. And I'm sure that that happened to them. But my first drink was a total disaster. I was 11 years old. I took my first drink Christmas in 1951. I was 11 years old, and it was a disaster. It almost killed me. I was drunk for about 10 minutes, and the rest of the time I was just sick. It all came right back up. I don't know whether any of you ever drank any straight moonshine, but that stuff is tough going down. It's a lot worse coming back up. <laughs> And a fear gripped me about that time that I, you know, that I'm not going to be able to be a man because if I'm going to have to drink alcohol and become what they is, I'm not going to be able to be a man. You know, and a fear gripped me about that. And I guess about that time I must have fell victim to peer pressure. Not that anybody was forcing me to drink or encouraging me to drink. But the rest of the guys that I was hanging around with didn't seem to be having that kind of problem. And I would drink just to cover up my fear. And I'd get drunk and I'd get sick again. You know, the next time I had a big encounter with any alcohol, my brother came home from the Korean conflict. And he was home for 31 days and he was sober the second day after he got there. And the rest of the time he was just drunk. And I got into his booze with him and got drunk. And the same thing happened. I was drunk for about 10 minutes, and the rest of the time I was just sick. And man, that was the best looking soldier I ever saw in my life. Man, that guy had on that GI uniform and those shine boots, talking that trash. And they would put him up on a pedestal down at that bootleg joint, and he would drink that whiskey and win that war single-handed. <laughs> man, they talked about, what a man. The man that Royce Holmes, he done went off and fought that war and can come back and drink that whiskey and walk. You know, I never thought that I was going to be a man like that. You know, in 1958, uh, my brother came home from, Co from uh, Omaha, Nebraska, and he had a little son. And uh, he sat down and talked with my father and talked my father into letting me go back to Omaha, Nebraska with him for the summer and babysit his son and come back that fall and go to school and help my old man gather his crops. 
Now I sat there and listened and then worked that whole deal out. I knew I wasn't coming back when I left. <laughs> if I ever get across that Mason Dixon line, Jack, I ain't coming back. I was 18 years old and fresh out of Mississippi, and they tanked me loose in the Midwest major city of Omaha, Nebraska, and tanked me loose. You know, and I just got out from under that long arm thumb of my old man's, and uh, they tanked me loose in that city, and I went nuts. You know, North Omaha is just lined up with bars, North 24th Street, bar everywhere. was a real strip. I mean, I had never saw nothing like that, that bar room. Man, that bar room and those fancy people in there and dressed all up, looked a lot like you do. Uh, <laughs> man, I, I, was just, I, I was just excited. I, I, I simply could not get enough of that. And I was out of control from the, from the very, very start. I spent all of my leisure time in the bar. If I fill out an application and I had to put my phone number down there, I'd put the bar's phone number down there. <laughs> that's where I was going to be at. My brother did get me a job working on construction on heavy highway, uh, building uh, the highway, uh, putting me in the labor union and everything, uh, making $2.25 an hour. This is in 1958. I tell you. I don't think General Motor was paying about two seventy-five by that time. Man, that's top wage for me. They put me on that heavy highway working uh, ten hours a day, uh, eight hours on Saturday. That's eighteen hours a week overtime. I'd get that big paycheck on Friday and head to the bar with Mississippi written all over me. <laughs> And those city slickers would set up in that bar and see me coming. You know, I walk in there and try to impress people. You know, I was right out of control from the very start, you know. And I'd cash that check and just, I had no concept uh, about responsibility or saving any money or anything. I, I just drank until all my money was gone. I, I just stayed right in that bar and drank that my money was gone. My brother used to go in that same bar with me and get his check cash and buy him a couple of bills and go home and pick his wife and kid up and go grocery shopping. I'd look out that bar room window and see him passing by there with his family in the car with him. I thought he was scared of his wife. <laughs> Man, what a henpecked guy he is. <laughs> I'm a man. I can stay in this bar as long as I want to, spend my last dime. Nobody better not say anything to me about my money. This is my money. I do what I want to do. You know, and I had no understanding about responsibilities, the building relationship with other people, nor was I interested in that. I just could not form some kind of relationship and get some kind of courtship going on. You know, I'm a one-night stand expert, you know. <laughs> I, that was just kind of kind of the way that I did things. I, I didn't understand. You know, if I went out on a date with somebody, and I might take somebody to the bar or the club or wherever it was, and, 
And if I see somebody else there, I just go on with them. <laughs> yeah, I ain't got no kind of obligation to you, you know, and I, I do the same thing with people that I'm supposed to call. You know, I, I, I would just absolutely lose interest in it. And I just baffles me to understand, you know, how anybody could be drunk and get married too. You know. Man, there's no way in the world I could have been drunk and get married too. But the program has taught me to be honest. The truth of the matter, when I was drunk, wasn't nobody going to mess with me. <laughs> when nobody wouldn't have had married me, you know, the way that that I was, and I I, I was just absolutely out of con control. Uh, when my money ran out, uh, I would stop drinking. You know, I can't drink unless I got some money in my pocket. I was drinking with a cheapskate one time. And man, I told him he's going to have to put $20 in my pocket because you, you're too slow. You know, can you imagine being a compulsive alcoholic sitting down waiting on somebody else to buy you a drink? <laughs> man, that, that, ain't, that just ain't going to work out very well. You know, about this time, I believe that alcoholism is a disease. I also believe it's a progressive disease. About this time, I did go through that excitement stage of alcoholism. You know, I built up a tolerance for alcohol and booze did not put me down easy. And I heard people say some of the same things about me that they said about that soldier brother of mine. That man, that James Holmes, he can drink that whiskey cane. He was down here last night putting down a double shot, and the first one back down here this morning ordering from the bar. You know, and I thought that that was something to be proud of. You know, I finally arrived, you know, I'm a man that can hold my liquor. And going through that excitement stage of alcoholism, I tell you, I simply could not get enough of it. It just pitched me off when the bar closed. Man, I get mad when there wasn't no party, when it was the end of the party. Those bars closed at 1 o'clock, and about 12.30, I'd be running up down that bar trying to find out where the party going to be at tonight. I just simply could not get enough of it. You know, I've never saw nothing like a, being in a live party between 2 and 4 o'clock in the morning on the floor doing the bar. Man, some strange things happen to people between 2 and 4 in the morning. Yeah. And I didn't want to miss it. I wanted to be there to find out what it was. You know, I wanted to see that action happen. I also believe that alcoholism is a progressive disease. Uh, I, my drinking it has always made me sick. By this time, I could shake a hangover by 9 o'clock in the morning, and on Monday morning, and I could shake that on the job. As my intake of alcohol got more, my sickness got longer. You know, it got to where that 12 o'clock would roll around on Monday morning, and I'm still in bed. If you're still in bed by 12 o'clock on Monday, you know, it ain't no use of going to work. <laughs> you know, as a matter of fact, don't call them. Those people in Nebraska had a little nail now reminded about that, you know, that guy missing too many Monday mornings in a row. And I set up a reputation that uh, he's a good worker, but he won't be here on Monday morning. <laughs> uh, Nebraska used to be known as the beef state. And this was on construction. 
you know, if you couldn't keep a job on construction, you was in pretty bad shape. You know, and that's what had happened to me, a construction company didn't even want me around, you know. But at that time, Nebraska was known as the beef state. And, uh, they kill all that beef there. They kill other stuff too, hogs and sheep and all that stuff. But it was known as the beef state. And uh, they had those uh, packing houses there, and those big four packing houses, uh, Armas and Cuddy Hayes and Wilson and Swifts. And I made my round to all of those packing houses, and the same thing happened. I get paid on Friday and wouldn't show up for work on Monday morning. And my reputation preceded me around all of those different packing houses and I couldn't keep a job. And I could no longer go back down to that bar and impress those people at the bar anymore. Because I can't drink without money. And I started doing the next best thing. I started stealing. <laughs> and I guess the worst thing could have happened, the first thing I ever stole, I got away with it. I'm just a petty thief. I get in a good thieves' way. <laughs> I'd run out and roll a drunk or snatch a purse or jake the payphone off of the wall and get all that change out of it, break in the laundry mat and tie down that coin change and get all that change and go back down to the bar with all that change in my pocket, <laughs> you know. Man, those guys thought I was waiting table somewhere with all that. <laughs> but I had found a way that I, you know, that I could stay drunk. You know, all the money that I ever stole immediately went for alcohol. You know, I could run out and do that little old petty thieving and run back to the bar and, and stay drunk. You know, stealing is also progressive. I progressed from that till I picked up a gun and started demanding money from people at gunpoint. You can get a little bit more money with a gun. I'm just telling you. I got to start getting a little bit of that folding stuff. Yeah. You know, you hear a lot of things in those bars that what I thought I heard, I might not have heard that. And I thought I heard in those bars that as uh, long as I didn't steal anything or rob anything right around there in the neighborhood, my chances are greater that I wouldn't get caught. So I'd run out around those uh, 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 different little towns and rob grocery stores and liquor stores and gas stations and all that petty and that stuff. And, I'd run back to the bar and stay drunk, you know. But in 1961, me and four other guys robbed a liquor store on North 16th Street. I can admit to that now that the statute of limitations done ran out on it. <laughs> I'm sure J.C. will tell me something different before we leave. Uh, <laughs> But right after that robbery, I, 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 I'm on the corner doing the same thing I always did. Right after that robbery, I'm on the corner getting drunk. And in the middle of that insane drunkenness, I made a decision to go back to Mississippi and rob a grocery store. I drove a thousand miles, clear from Omaha, Nebraska, all the way to the Cap, Mississippi, purpose to rob a grocery store. <laughs> That's the insanity of alcoholism. 
Wells Fargo is in the Midwest. I drove clear past all of that. <laughs> all the way to Mississippi to rob a grocery store. I've always known about this grocery store. I know this guy stayed up all day Friday and all day Saturday and all day Sunday and Monday he got up and took his money to the bank. And it was my plan to be down there and stick him up and get his money and get back on the highway and head back to Nebraska and nobody would be the wiser. <laughs> Went down there that Monday morning and stuck him up. He had the money just like I know he would have. You know. I stuck him up, got the money. I did the same thing I always did. I went 39 miles from the scene of the crime and got drunk. <laughs> now you're just going to have to imagine this. This was in 1961. Five black guys in Meridian, Mississippi, on the streets, drunk, Monday morning, 39 miles from the scene of an armed robbery crime, and this don't look suspicious. Man, I was just like a coon. As you cover my eyes up, I thought my whole body was out of sight. <laughs> they let me stay in Mississippi all day that Monday and drink that liquor. More of that alcohol I put into my system that Monday, the dumb of those people in Mississippi look. I thought, well, these people in Mississippi just as dumb as I always heard they were. They don't know who robbed that grocery store. It's plenty of money in Mississippi. I ain't going to ever have to leave Mississippi. Again. <laughs> they let me stay in Meridian, Mississippi all day that day, and about 9 o'clock that Monday night, they rostered me out of one of those bootleg joints and arrested me for armed robbery. Next Monday morning, they took me up for the scene of that crime and stood me before a judge and sentenced me to a life sentence in the Mississippi State Penitentiary for armed robbery. Now, I'm not proud of that. You know, that's just what happened. I had enough guilt and shame tied around my neck to last me a lifetime. And I immediately went in to repent. You know, oh God, if you get me out of this, I'd never do that again. God, you know I know better than that. God, not only am I not going to rob anything else, I'm going to stop the rest of them hoodlums from robbing too. Uh, you know, for a long time I believed that, you know, I believed that they had to tank me loose, I would have went straight, you know. I could have roped scared straight. Yeah. But I was 21 years old and I was a full-blown alcoholic. Didn't know it and I wouldn't have did anything about my drinking. And of course it would have happened again. But that ain't what happened. In 1961, they sent me off that Mississippi State Penitentiary to do that life sentence. You know, I went in that penitentiary with all of the guilt and resentments and justification that I could think of. You know, wondering why would they do this to me? Other people that I was doing time with said the same thing. Now, why would they do that to you? <laughs> yeah. My first defense, and I ain't got a life sentence. Yeah. No mercy. You know. And man, I had one of those attitudes that somebody going to pay for this. <laughs> I'm going to get even for this. 
That Mississippi State Penitentiary I went into, they method was to break you. They believed that cruel and unusual punishment was a method for rehabilitation. You know, and that penitentiary sat on a 21,000-acre plantation, and they raised cotton and corn, and they did it all by hand. <laughs> I don't know whether anybody in here ever been in that Mississippi Delta or not, but man, in that Mississippi Delta, those days are long. I mean, my God, that sun hangs up there all day long. And they work from sunup to sundown. A half a day to them people is 12 hours. <laughs> Just from what I can know about that, that penitentiary ran by a group of vigilantes. And they, you know, they was the law. You know, whatever it is that they say, go. You know, they issued out any kind of punishment that they wanted to, you know, and, and got away with it. The more cruel and unusual of that kind of punishment and the harder they worked me and the more rude that those people was, the more sure I was that if I ever get out of here, I'm going to get drunk. <laughs> you know, the only reason why I bring that up is cruel and unusual punishment is not a cure for alcoholism. It will not stop you from drinking. You know, but that penitentiary had a, had a, had a system at that time. Uh, if you went in there, it uh, uh, didn't make any difference how much time you had. In 10 years, you was eligible for parole, 120 months with good behavior and a model convict. Uh, you were going to make, make parole. You know, and that, that was my goal, to become a model inmate and uh, uh, do what these people tell me and learn how to comply with them and, you know, fit into that little old system they got, and when time come for me to get parole, uh, I make it. You know, and that was the promise that I had made to my family too. You know, and that 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 really didn't seem too bad. I was 21 years old at that time. I was gonna be 31 when I got out, and uh, you know, I'd have plenty of time to start my life over again. But I, you know, I I, I lived a life as a convict that is unimaginable to any law enforcement that a convict could do some of the things that I did as working on a life sentence. You know, I learned how to comply with those people. I do whatever they tell me to do. You know, if you do that, they had all kinds of little perks that went along with that. You know, one of those perks was uh, you could become a trustee. If you become a trustee, you had access to the free world. And in the free world, there was that booze. <laughs> you know, I guess for about the next four years, I drank in some kind of control or some kind of moderation. Not that I have any kind of controlled drinking or anything. It was just because of the availability of it. I wasn't able to get enough to really to get out of control. You know, uh, either I didn't have enough money. There's another little old perk that they had to that. If you was a trustee, uh, they'd give you 10-day leave home once a year. And I made that 10-day leave home four times. You know, and I'd leave that penitentiary and go out in the free world and for 10 days, and I'd just stay drunk for 10 days. And I'd go back in that penitentiary, and I'd just be depressed. 
You know, and one of them other convicts will say, you ought to be depressed. You was out there, you should have stayed. <laughs> I said, man, you know, I was wondering that same thing. But you know those people around that penitentiary, they had one little step ahead of you. If you went out on 10 days, they made you sign expedition papers before you leave. And wherever you got caught at, you, they was, you was their property, and they could just come and get you, you know. And I, I know a few guys that tried that, and they'd run up to Detroit somewhere and snatch them back, you know, <laughs> bring them back down there. So uh, I didn't want that to happen to me. If you ever want to know anything about the law and what the law can do and what the law can't do, ask, ask a convict. They know. <laughs> you know, and some of those convicts have told me that every state in the United States didn't cooperate with Mississippi. And if you escaped from that penitentiary, you wouldn't be done signing those expedition papers and you went to some of those states that didn't cooperate with Mississippi, they couldn't get you back. And one of those states was Colorado. In 1967, I ran off in that penitentiary and went to Denver, Colorado. And they locked me up. <laughs> Man, wasn't any of that true. Every state in the United States cooperate with Mississippi. A <laughs> couple of those foreign countries, it didn't make any difference where I went there. They were going to get me back. You know, I ran off that penitentiary with the Denver, Colorado, and they locked me up. You know, but a phenomenal thing did happen. Uh, uh, they set a bond on me. They gave me a bond for $25,000. You know, it was just by accident that I found out that they had a bond on me. I don't know whether any of y'all ever been in jail or not, but they put your stuff in a in a package thing, and they had it written on there what my what my bond was. And I could not believe that they had set a $25,000 bond on me. You know, and I'm an alcoholic. Man, I got to thinking. You know, <laughs> $25,000 bond, I might can get out of this. You know, I know what it costs to make that. It costs $2,500. And I called my brother back in uh, Omaha, Nebraska, and told him what had happened. Scared him to death. <laughs> man, I told him what I had did and where I was at. And man, those people were waiting to extradite me back to Mississippi, and they were plenty mad with me now. <laughs> Ain't no telling what they do to me if they get me back again. <laughs> you know, scared the daylights out of him. He hopped the next plane and flew out to Denver, Colorado, and brought me $2,500 out there to get out of jail. You know, just because you got enough money to get out of jail, you can't just get out of jail. You got to wait to go before the magistrate. And I couldn't get before the magistrate before two, three days down the road. And my brother couldn't stay for two, three days till I went to court, you know. And guess who copped an attitude? <laughs> I got mad. I don't know what kind of brother he is. <laughs> you know, I'm out here in all this trouble, and he can't stay here for two days whilst I go to court. You know, I ain't got no support. It don't make me go up and face them people all by myself. <laughs> I would never treat a brother of mine like that. Uh, <laughs> 
he had to do something like go back to Omaha and go to work. <laughs> See, he grasped that concept that my father preached that hard work was the key to success. That's how come he had $2,500. Sure enough, two, three days down the road, I went before the judge and my attorney asked the judge to reduce my bond from $25,000 to $15,000. The judge recessed the court and came back and reduced my bond to $5,000. Man, I'm glad my brother gone now. (laughs) (laughs) Only cause me... Only cost me five hundred dollars to get out of jail. I got two thousand dollars to get drunk on. I never got out of jail unless I got drunk. The only thing that's different between this and any other time is that I got two thousand dollars to do it with. Now my, my my sponsor says that alcoholics are just full of coincidence. I mean, that is one of the most coincidence that ever could have happened to me. It's more coincident looking back on it over my life. You know, I'm an escaped convict from fugitive from justice, uh, doing a life sentence, and they let me out on a $5,000 bond. I mean, I hear now that judges talk about and DAs talk about a, a risk of flight. He's a flight risk. If anybody was a fright risk, it was me. <laughs> and I just simply could not believe that they let me out on bond. And I would be thinking about that thing. I'd be thinking, say, well, they must be watching me. <laughs> they just let me out just to see what it is that I'm going to do. You know? Either that or they scatter me, you know. <laughs> I have not been able to figure out to yet, you know, why in the world would they let a fugitive from justice and an escaped convict out on mud? You know, it's still baffling to me, but it didn't do me any good because I didn't get out on bond and try to do anything for myself or uh, make any kind of restitution or do anything. I just got out and continued to live thinking the way that I was living. I was in a perfect position to continue to use and abuse other people. You know, I had no use for other people. You know, if you saw me spending any time with anybody, they had something I wanted. They either they had the car or the money or a place to stay or the booze or all the above. All was totally justified to me. I'm a user. You know, and I had learned how to play those little old convict games, and I knew how to take advantage of a few peoples, and, uh, you know, and I ain't nothing to be proud of. I was good at it, you know. And I learned how to live off of, off of other people. And it was justified to me because I'm an escaped convict, and ain't nobody going to let me work, and this is the way that I'm supposed to do that. Now, I got out on that bond, and I, I, the, the, what my case was to the, my attorney was that I was crying, cruel, and unusual. Why I was on that escape, and I, I fought off everything that you could imagine that would be cruel and unusual against Mississippi, and this was my defense for not going back. 
And you know, man, you know what those people are going to do to me if they get me back down there. You know, they are dragging people in Mississippi and ain't did nothing. So you can imagine what they're going to do to me. Yeah. And that, 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 was, that, was, that was my, my defense uh, of what, what, what I was using for defense. And every time that I would go to court, they would either postpone it or appeal it to another court or uh, do something like that. I finally went to, to court and they uh, appealed it to a Colorado Supreme Court. And one day I was laying in the bed and a friend of mine called me up and said that I better get up and get the newspaper and told me what page to look on and newspaper says that Colorado Supreme Court denied James home of his expedition and have been ordered back to the Mississippi State Penitentiary to finish serving out the rest of his life sentence. Now that's how I got to New Jersey. <laughs> sister living in Passaic, New Jersey at the time that I hadn't saw in a long time, and I thought that I'd go out there and visit with her for a while before they, before they catch up with me. And I went out to Passaic, New Jersey, and I was out there mooching off of her for two more years. I was on escape for four years from that penitentiary. I stayed two years in Denver, Colorado, and I stayed two years in Passaic, New Jersey. You know, and nothing changed. You know, I lived on uh, alcohol. The only thing that I know that changed, uh, you know, uh, when I got to Forsake, New Jersey, uh, I can't remember anybody saying anything to me about my drinking because that part of the ghettos that I was in in that city, nobody cared anything about a drunk. You know, and I thought, well, I could drink in peace. But this is a progressive disease. That same tolerance that I built up for alcohol physically, I crossed that invisible physical line of alcoholism. You know, my body would no longer tolerate alcohol physically. And that is more cruel and unusual punishment than that Mississippi State Penitentiary could have ever dished out at me is to be dumping alcohol into a body that won't take it. You know, I got all of the craving and the compulsion and the desires and the excitements about alcohol that I ever had. And I'm not dumping it into a body that won't take it. And I start having severe withdrawals. You know, my hands shut. You know, I got to start having alcoholic seizures, alcoholic hallucinations. You know, I go into alcoholic hallucination and be in hallucination for two, three days. You know, running around thinking that people are after me. You know, I drink one drink and uh, black out. You know, I woke up in people's houses and didn't remember going there. I woke up in people's houses, didn't even know who they were. You know, I'd call the police and tell them somebody that stole my car and walk around the corner and there it is. <laughs> My solution to blackouts was to get drunk again and I would remember what happened. <laughs> and I'd get drunk again and black out. My solution to shakes was to take another drink. 
You know how they say your bartender is your best counselor. He sure was a good counselor to me. I didn't even know my hands shook. <laughs> he was the one who said that, man, you are shaking this morning. Yeah. He has a double shot on the house. You know, and that was my solution to, uh, to the shake. That was my solution to any of those sickness was to, uh, to drink again. You know, and alcohol had beat me down to a state of nothingness. In 1971, the police had rostered me off one of those corners in Passaic, New Jersey, and arrested me for being an escaped convict. There's a saying in the program, being sick and tired of being sick and tired, and it was at that point, you know, that I knew that I was sick and tired of being sick and tired. I just didn't know what those words were. And I welcomed that arrest because I knew that I was being saved from myself. You know, and I knew if I could go back to that penitentiary, get locked up or something, and I, I could give me some more time to uh, get myself together and get my throats together and quit going crazy and quit hallucinating and start remembering stuff, then, then I, would, I, I would be okay. I could drink like uh, other people. And that, that's exactly what happened. They rostered me off of that corner and extradited me back to that penitentiary in 19... Uh, 71 and I went back and stayed for another two years and nine months and got out on parole. I never did do that 10 years but I went back there and put in a new program called shock parole. <laughs> yeah. It's just work release. Yeah, they, they let me out on work release early. You know, I, I don't know how that happened. It's just another one of those coincidences. You know, I don't know anybody else ever escaped from that penitentiary. They didn't take them to court. You know, it's automatic. They'd give you a year. They never did take me to court. You know, and that, all of those are just coincidence. But, you know, I turned that into me being something special. You know, they can't treat me like they treat the other folks. I left that penitentiary in 1974 and went out into that free war, even with the war. That big family that I came from have always been supportive of me. They supported me through all of that time. They supported me on all of that escape. They never said no to me. I left that penitentiary in 1974. I was four years between penitentiary and getting sober. The worst four years I ever spent in my entire life was that four years, if you can believe that. I left penitentiary in 1974 and things got worse for me. I took a nosedive. I left that penitentiary and started walking downhill. You know, the measuring stick that I used that things got worse for me, I lost my family in the free war. Within that next four years, I drove my family clear away from me. When I came into the program of Alcoholic Anonymous, my family didn't want anything to do with me. My brother drove his deuce in a quarter to my house and told me he'd put me in his car and haul me back to that penitentiary. So anything anybody had been through with what I had been through with and come out there and live the way that I was living ought to be locked up. You know, and I just resented him for that. You know, I dare you to talk to me like that. You know, who needs you? You know, one by one, I drove my family clear away from me. 
I stayed two years in Mississippi on that parole. I was able to go back to Mississippi and move in the house with my mother and father. And all of my brothers and sisters was gone. Wasn't nobody there but my mother and father, and they had built a brand-new brick house. And wasn't nobody there but me and them. And they treated me like a king. I mean, every whim that I could think of that I wanted, you know, I got it. My mother could not stand the thought that I didn't have any money in my pocket, you know. They treated me just, and I couldn't stand it. They could get up and speak to me, and I wonder why they bothered me. You know, why don't you leave me alone? You know, my daddy would say, boy, your mama stay up all night worried about you when you don't come home. And I thought, well, I'm a grown man, you know, and she don't know any better to stay up here and worry about me all night, you know, later. But I didn't know until I came into the program of Alcoholic Anonymous, I was powerless over alcohol. I could not stop living the way that I was living and putting alcohol into my system the way that I was putting in there. And she was powerless over her emotions. She could not feel, stop feeling the way that she felt about me. I was living the way that I was living. After I stayed in Mississippi for them for two years, uh, they let me transfer my parole back to Omaha, Nebraska. You know, I'm out of Mississippi again. Man, I tell you, Omaha is right where I ought to be. They know how to treat me in Omaha. I went back to Omaha and headed right back down to that strip, right back into those same bars. But, you know, things had changed. People didn't want me around anymore. When I came into the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, I was barred out of all those bars in North Omaha. You know, I, I could no longer... Uh, function under the influence of alcohol. I, I was just, I was just crazy. In 1978, I was arrested for drunk driving, and I was arrested for drunk driving and on parole from a penitentiary with a life sentence. And my parole officer and some other people got together and uh, did an invention, intervention for me, and allowed me to go off to the hospital to be treated for alcoholism in 1978. And that is why I was introduced to the program of Alcoholic Anonymous Act. That was people from the program of Alcoholic Anonymous came in to bring the message in to people that wasn't able to go out to meet it. You know, and that, that's what you did. That's the fifth tradition of Alcoholic Anonymous. That each group has but one primary purpose, and that's to carry the message to the alcoholics who still suffer. And that's exactly what you did. It was called a treatment center. They charged me uh, $6,000 for the big book. <laughs> That's exactly what I got out of that. But I was introduced to the program of Alcoholic Anonymous. I was given a full orientation to the program of Alcoholic Anonymous. People came in there every night and shared their stories, just like what we're doing here today. Just like what we've been doing y'all weekend, one drunk talking to another. And you know, with that kind of message, I was finally able to identify with those people and see what the steps of my problem was, and I became willing to follow those people to the program of Alcoholic Anonymous. You know, everything in the program is already written. 
They don't need me to put anything into it. It's already written down. Anything that you want to know about Alcoholics Anonymous is in some kind of pamphlet or a book. You know, they don't need my input. They just need me to follow what it is that is written down and what it is that those people tell me to do. That snaps out then the 12 steps says that the 12 steps is a, is a set of spiritual principles that is practiced as a way of living will expel the obsession to drink alcohol and return their user to use to hold and uselessness. That's what the program of Alcoholic Anonymous have done for me. It have put me back into society. You know, not only have I stayed sober for 24 years, thank God and thanks to you, but you gave me my family back. You know, I'm back in the good graces of my family today. You know, I'm a married man today. I've been married for 24 years, and I have two kids and a grandbaby, you know. And you've taught me by practicing those traditions, you know, how to be a father. You know, my greatest trouble, the biggest scare come in the program came on the heels of success. You know, in 1986, I built the house from the ground in Omaha, Nebraska. You know, somewhere between uh, Thanksgiving and Christmas, I moved into that house. They bought me a brand new Oldsmobile and put it in the garage. Didn't need it, it just went with the house. <laughs> Christmas rolled around, I rolled that Oldsmobile out of the garage and went and visited my sister. And my brother-in-law put me up on a pedestal so high that it took everybody in Alcoholic Anonymous to get me off of <laughs> He said, man, you really know how to do it. Look at you. In eight years, you have did more than people who've been working at this all their life. Just look at you. You've got that good job, got that wife and those kids, done built that brand new house. Man, you really know how to do it. And by that time, my sister come running out of the kitchen and says, Sir Jane, so I knew that you wasn't an alcoholic. <laughs> Had you been an alcoholic, it ain't no way that you could do all the stuff that you've been doing. And I guess for about a half a day, I entertained the idea that I might not be an alcoholic. <laughs> I ain't thinking about drinking. I'm just thinking about not being an alcoholic. <laughs> but I believe you got to quit being an alcoholic before you can drink. You know, and that's what was coming up next for me. But thank God at that city, they had the Alcathon Christmas. And I went to the Alcathon that day evening with my sponsor. And no sooner I walked into that Alcathon meeting and said, yeah, you're an alcoholic. <laughs> <laughs> and you are right where you ought to be at. You know, if I don't get anything else out of this this weekend, that's what you have allowed me to do. You've allowed me to be an alcoholic. You know, and if I don't forget that I'm an alcoholic, you know, I may be able to stay sober, you know, another 24 hours. Bill Wilson says that not only did God save us from our alcoholism, the world around us have accepted me back into a society with all of its rights. 
1984, the Governor William Winter of Mississippi pardoned me off of that life sentence and restored my civil rights. You know, I can vote today. I'm still voting for them losers, but I'm voting. But <laughs> uh, I have that right today. You know, I, I've been gainfully employed since I've been sober, thank God. You know, I worked for 11 years in the state of Nebraska, and, and after that I moved to Virginia. I got a phone call one day and called me and offered me a job in Virginia, paid me more money than I ever thought about, and paid my wife too, and flew me out there and had me hobnobbing with doctors and EAP peoples from DuPont and Philip Morris and, you know, really made me somebody. And after about two years, that job fell through. You know, I ain't had no job. But thank God, once again, I, the, through the fellowship of Alcoholic Anonymous, I know some people down in North Carolina that I reached out for me, you know, and gave me a job in uh, North Carolina. Moved me to Raleigh, North Carolina, and uh, gave me an office on Capitol Boulevard and a car and a secretary, a drunk like me. Yeah. Gave me a job working for the Department of Correction. <laughs> a convict like me. That's what the program of Alcoholic Anonymous would do. And that was my strongest reference came from the fellowship of Alcoholic Anonymous. You know, and I spent the next, uh, up until this time, working for the Department of Correction. You know, and I, I just retired on Thursday. You know, and I owe all of that. that to the program of Alcoholic Anonymous. You know, I, today I live in a state of grace. You know, and my understanding is uh, grace is something that you don't have to do anything for. You know, it's just something that I got. You know, and all of that is a state of grace. You know, I didn't do anything to receive that. It came because I'm a sober member of Alcoholic Anonymous. You know, and I want to thank you for that. I want to thank you for being here and continue your success on the men conference and uh, God bless you and keep up good work. <laughs>